everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Grace Atwood. And it's book club day. It is. But before we get into it, today's episode is brought to you by Knight, the makers of our all-time favorite pillow, and now our favorite face masks. So we'll tell you more about them later in the episode, but if you'd like to take 20% off your order, you can use code BOP20 at discoverknight.com. Yes. So Becca, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I feel really positive right now. I... I'm still so excited about my Soul Cycle bike. It has been such a bright spot. How many more it. times have you used it? It came last Tuesday, and today is Thursday, and I've done six rides altogether. Oh, that's amazing. You're getting your money's worth. Yeah, I'm totally getting my money's worth. I feel like worth. we calculated how many times you had to use it for it to be worth it. And it's less because I thought that it was more expensive than it, it ended up being. That's good. How's your um, your crotch situation? My, my cr- vaginal toughness has been restored, mostly. Mostly. I am still out of shape and it is still really hard. And I don't feel like I'm like fully back to where I was, but at least like being able to sit is is not problematic. Yes. So no, I'm really good. Can I tell you my highs? Yes. Okay. So my first high is that Rachel is moving here this weekend. She gets here on Sunday. So by the time this goes live. She'll live here. That's so crazy. I'm so excited. And she's her apartment. She's not living in our building, but her apartment is two blocks away. Amazing. So I'm very excited both to have another friend in the direct vicinity, but then also I think for the purposes of like writing rom-com pods, it's going to also make our workflow so much better to be in person and on the same time zone. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm excited about that. And then my other high is just that I feel very on top of my schedule right now. Oh, that's so good. It's it's just the nicest feeling where I don't feel stressed. I feel like I have things I need to do, but I have enough time to do them. Haven't had any social plans this week. Like I just feeling good. That's really good. How about you? What's your high? Um, my high is well, I have a bunch. Um, I'm feeling in control of my schedule too. I feel like Today's my last like really crazy day because tomorrow morning at nine, all of my assets for Amazon are due. And that's like so much work because when you partner with them, you actually have to create all the assets for their product pages. So besides all the content for social media, I had to do like front, back, side, all the photos, and then also a video for each individual SKU. And then I have to do a bunch of teaser videos. And today, when we finish recording, I'm going to try and make a Reels, um, which I haven't done a Reel yet, and I'm really nervous. I'm Um, sure it'll be fine. You used to make TikToks. It's the same thing. Yeah, but... I wasn't good at TikToks. I made I made TikToks for like a week and was like, "Ooh, this isn't for me." To be fair, I don't think I've seen very many good reels either. So yeah, so at least like the I don't know we'll the see. bars low. I'm a little nervous, but I'm feeling like after today things will be a little bit more manageable. Um, just because creating all of that stuff is just it's a, t- a ton of work and it's so cool. Like I think that like doing these partnerships is my favorite because it's like a tangible product that like. I can touch and feel and hold and my readers can too. It's it's cool. But it's been a lot. I feel like we got away from highs and you're into your oh, low. It's Tell not a low. It's it's that my schedule is going to be better after tomorrow. As the person that can see the outline, I can tell yes. you that it's listed as a low. Well, oh, it is. Um, <laughs> but it's also a high because I'll be in control of my schedule. Um, my other high is that my living room chairs came. If you follow me on Instagram, they are so beautiful. They make me so happy. I like have wanted a set of these specific Marcel Brewer Seska chairs for so long. 
It was really hard to find a set of six matching ones. I found them on first dibs. They are absolutely perfect. I love them so much. They're from the 60s. I feel like furniture from the actual past is better made than furniture today. Totally. Um, Like they're just perfect. The caning, the original caning is all in place. Like I love them so much. Hopefully I do not destroy them, but they're pretty durable. I'm very happy with them. They're obviously beautiful. I knew that they were going to be beautiful, but because we record the podcast at Grace's apartment, I was a little nervous for my butt. (laughs) And I was like, these don't look comfortable because her old chairs were padded, but I can vouch that they're they're pretty comfortable. Yeah. She sat down and she's like, oh, this isn't bad. I was like, Becca, I wouldn't get uncomfortable. I love furniture that looks uncomfortable, but it's Well, did you know that before you got them? Um, I read a lot of reviews and people okay. said they were comfortable. Okay. It's because it has like a cantilever shape and it um, – so it is just like a little bit springy and, and almost cushiony despite being um, like a harder surface, not padded. It would have bought you a, 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 a cushion for a recording if, if oh, you had a problem. that would have been so nice. Yeah. I want to make sure that you're comfortable. Well, we know that my – my undercarriage has had a rough go of it the past couple of weeks, so I'm I'm a little sensitive. It has. Um, wait, my other high is that my birthday is on Sunday. Um, I'm going to so when this airs, I will be officially 39 years old and into the last year of my 30s. Are you freaking out? I am freaking out because I'm like, what do I want to do with my last year of my 30s? And we're in a pandemic, and I'm like, probably not much. So I freaked out way harder when I turned 29 than when I turned 30. And so I don't know if that was like a happenstance or if it'll just always be that way. But I felt like I freaked out really hard about 29 and then didn't care at all about 30. I'm not freaking out. I'm just kind of like, wow, it's kind of a bummer that my last year of my 30s, I'm probably going to be like locked inside, can't travel, can't really date, like whatever my... Well, I guess it's going to make 40 all the better. Yeah. What'll be better is when we have a vaccine and we can get back to semi-regular normal life. Um, and then my mom sent me a package. My mom is the cutest. Like, I saw on Instagram. She, I don't know what's in it yet because I'm saving it till Sunday. Also, my sister sent me artwork from Jack and Will. Um, Cute. And I don't know what's in it, but I'm excited. And she like hand painted all of the wrapping paper. She's just the cutest. Mom, I know you're listening. I love you. Thank you. Aw. Yeah. So those are my highs. What's your low? Oh, so my low is also soul cycle adjustment related. Um, I'm feeling very dehydrated. Because I, um, I, I don't. Obviously, when I do soul cycle, I sweat a lot. I didn't actually think I would sweat as much as I do, because you know how in the room at a studio it's really heated. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I don't even think I'm going to sweat at all. I think the sweat is just manufactured because the room is so hot. But I definitely sweat. Um, and I don't feel like I've upped my water intake. So I drink water while I do it, but then I don't drink extra water. Do you have liquid IV? Um, I have drip drop, which is, I think, the same thing. I think they're the same. I have also been dehydrated and I don't know why. I think just not drinking enough water because I've been a little stressed and I, when I like get really focused on projects, I just sit and I sit and I sit and I don't drink water. (laughs) Um, well, I feel like when I went freelance, I stopped, when I was in an office, I drank so much water because it's also something to get up and Yeah, you get up and fill your water bottle. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I need a break. I'm going to like go get some water. Yeah. So- not that I'm usually dehydrated, but I'm like, it's a harder thing to remember. Yeah. Maybe I need one of those giant bottles where it's like all your water for the day. Yeah. I don't know. I've been feeling dehydrated too. And my- So do you have liquid IV every day? Not every day. Just when I feel 
dehydrated because I've been getting like my low is I've been getting like really bad headaches. Um, yeah, you had a headache for like two days. I had a headache for two freaking days and it was so annoying. It's gone. Do you think it was dehydration? I think it was dehydration and allergies. Ooh. I've had a runny nose too um, and I've been sneezing a bunch. I've felt my allergies been acting up too, which doesn't make sense because it's usually spring is allergies so i don't really understand it but i i have felt that whenever the seasons change so this is like a general low is my skin freaks out i posted a whole story set today about like what i've been doing to like fix my skin because it gets so dry and so patchy and like really just tight feeling like my face just feels like tight and and like bad now that you said that now i'm like oh my face feels tight but i think i'm just being a, a hypochondria <laughs> it's probably like whenever someone's talking about something like when you were saying you were dehydrated i'm like oh i really should have more water <laughs> um but i think the change of seasons i get really bad allergies i've been getting really bad tension headaches and i've been my skin's been freaking out my skin's feeling better my headache is gone but i my, my nose is real drippy today mm. yeah well, apparently we both need to drink more water. Yeah. So, Do you know what I'm talking about? Those giant jugs that I, I see a bunch of like fitness people have them on Instagram where it's like. Yeah, but do you want that in your house? No. Get like a nice pitcher and put it in the fridge and make sure you drink the whole pitcher throughout the day. I don't think that'll help. Okay. I think I just need to like, I don't know, set reminders or like, I don't know if there's like an <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I need to do. God, we have we sound so helpless. Like, I don't. We can't even figure out how to drink water. <laughs> I know, but it's just I feel like I had it calibrated, and then I introduced doing yeah hard cardio on an almost daily basis, and I'm like, ooh, I like woke up yesterday, and I was like, I felt like my mouth was like the desert. I felt like that too. Maybe it's just our building. I had like the scratchiest throat and was like coughing because my throat was so dry. Ooh, maybe yeah. it's our building. Yeah, I don't know. We're dying. <laughs> well, let's get into our book episode. Yes. We know that it's going to be good because we recorded it in the past because we had Katie McGee, who's the author of this book, join us for our first ever hybrid book club author discussion. Yes, it was so fun to have her on. She's the absolute best. And she also just like gives so much fun insight into the book. So much behind the scenes. Yes. All right, let's get into it. So we are so excited to have a combination book club slash author episode today. We have Catherine McGee with us, who is the author of our September book club pick, Majesty, which is the second book in the American Royals series. So Catherine McGee is the New York Times bestselling author of American Royals and the Thousandth Floor series. She studied English literature at Princeton and has an MBA from Stanford. Catherine's dream job was always to work as a Disney princess, but when she learned that she wasn't tall enough, she wound up writing instead. So she's been speculating about American royalty since her undergraduate days when she submitted a thesis on castle envy, the idea that the American psyche is missing out on something because Americans don't have a royal family of their own. Uh, Catherine lives with her husband in her hometown of Houston, Texas, and potentially by the time this airs, she has a new baby. Yeah. Yes. Welcome. I'm so excited. Thank you guys so much for having me and for having me back. I'm I'm so excited to um, to be here again, and I wish we were doing this in person, but I'm glad we're getting to do it this way. Same. I mean, just keep writing good books, and you can just keep coming back and back and back because we're such huge fans of everything you've written. Yeah, this is actually the third Catherine McGee book that we've done on the podcast. We did The Thousandth Floor like really early, early on. And then last September, we did American Royals. 
And then now we're back for round three. You're our most book clubbed author. Yeah. That is such an honor. Let's talk about this book. We always do our plot summary. So let us give the quick rundown on the book and then we're going to get into it. Yes. So the book opens with the king's funeral. Beatrice is now the reigning queen, no longer a princess. Then we fast forward six weeks later. The Washingtons have been at their country house, privately mourning the loss of the king. Upon her return, Beatrice's chamberlain advises her that she must expedite the wedding to Teddy in order to provide America with stability in this time of transition. Despite the fact that she is still in love with her guard, Connor, Beatrice decides she must do what is right for America and put her own needs aside. She breaks up with Connor and he leaves his post at the palace. It would be just too painful to see Beatrice every day. So meanwhile, Nina is back at college and committed to a life away from the royal family. But Sam calls her and asks her to come to her first public appearance since her father's death. And just like that, Nina is back in the royal world. So at the event, Daphne sees Nina and Jeff talking and decides that she must hatch a plan to keep them apart so she can get Jefferson back. So she makes a deal with Jeff's best friend, Ethan. Ethan is going to flirt with Nina and keep her occupied in exchange for getting a title when Daphne and Jeff gets, get married and Daphne becomes a princess. At the same event, Sam runs into Teddy, who is both Beatrice's fiance and Sam's secret lover. He tells her that... His wedding to Beatrice is still on, and he needs to break things off with Sam. She's crushed and goes into full royal rebellion mode. At an event she has to attend, she sneaks away to the balcony where she meets someone else who's hiding out, Marshall Davis, the heir to the Dukedom of Orange. The, they decide to go back into the party together, hoping to make their exes jealous. It works so well that they decide to pursue a full-blown fake relationship. They both want to make their exes jealous, plus Sam is under an increasing amount of pressure as Beatrice's heir to the throne, and Marshall is a very suitable match from an optics perspective. So back at college, Ethan starts to put himself in Nina's path, and even though they've known each other since they were kids as the twins' respective best friends, they've never really gotten along. But they're surprised to find that they actually have a lot in common, and it's not long before Nina is developing feelings for Ethan and vice versa. So on Daphne's end, she's shocked when she gets a call from her best friend, Hamari, who had been in a coma for all of book one, and she's just woken up. The accident that caused her coma was Daphne's fault, so she's relieved that Hamari has completely lost her memory of the week before the accident. Meanwhile, Beatrice is pushing full steam ahead with the royal wedding plans. At first, her and Teddy are both in the relationship because of outside pressure, Beatrice to America, and Teddy to his family, who's secretly in a massive amount of debt. But as they spend more time together in the lead up to the wedding, they find that they actually do have real feelings for each other. So while their mother is out of town, the twins throw a raucous party at the palace. And at the party, Sam and Marshall have a romantic kiss that makes her think there may be more to Marshall than their fake relationship. But she realizes it was all for show when they're caught on camera by all of the party attendees and it ends up in the press. So her mother is furious, and Sam is told that she needs to get more serious with Marshall so that the photos seem more like an invasion of privacy than Sam being back to her wild party girl ways. So after Sam is reprimanded, she runs into Daphne, and they have an unexpected bonding moment, and Sam asks Daphne to give her princess lessons. 
Things are about to get much more complicated for Daphne. Himari's memory has come back, and she knows Daphne's to blame for her accident. And then at home, she's under a ton of pressure from her social climbing parents, but why she's not back together with Jeff. To speed things along, Daphne tips off the press to Nina and Ethan's new relationship, knowing that when Jeff finds out, he'll be hurt and come to Daphne for comfort. Her plan works like a charm, and Jeff eventually asks her to be his date for the royal wedding. So... All this time, Beatrice has been struggling in her role as the new queen. Her chamberlain only wants her to focus on the wedding, but she wants to be taken seriously as a ruler, too. So it's customary that Congress invites the reigning monarch to the closing session of Congress. But when the day arrives and Beatrice has not been invited, she decides to go anyway and demand to be taken seriously. She's shocked when she arrives and finds her chamberlain there. He implies that she cannot rule or be taken seriously without a husband. So Beatrice is obviously incredibly upset and surprised when she finds herself going to Teddy for comfort and to discuss her problems. So we can see in this moment that he will be a great king consort. He's providing her with support and advice and and being a true partner to her. Then, on a trip to Orange, Sam sees Teddy with Beatrice and Marshall with his ex. She's shocked to find that she's actually more jealous of Marshall, and she realizes that she never really loved Teddy, but is instead falling for Marshall. Eventually, Sam confesses her feelings to Marshall, and he tells her that it's real for him, too. Getting together with Marshall and realizing that she's over Teddy also makes Sam soften to Beatrice. She's been too hard on her. The sisters reconcile just in time for the royal wedding. So the morning of the royal wedding, all hell breaks loose. Sam has a heartfelt conversation with Teddy, but Marshall sees it and puts two and two together that Teddy is her ex. He storms off, totally disgusted by her. Then Connor shows up. Sam had found a wedding invitation for him in Beatrice's desk and mailed it out of spite. Connor goes to see Beatrice, and while they're alone talking, the palace alarms go off. So the palace security system locks Beatrice and Connor together in the bride's room and also locks all the guests into the wedding hall. And so the wedding descends into complete pandemonium. The sense of impending danger causes a slew of romantic confessions and realizations. Beatrice finally has a heart-to-heart with Connor and tells him she doesn't love him anymore. Daphne realizes that she actually loves Ethan, but when she confesses this to him, he tells her he doesn't love her and is serious about Nina. So Daphne goes to confront Nina and tell her that Ethan only asked her out to keep her away from Jeff. But in the end, Daphne has Jeff, but she realizes it's not going to ever make her happy. So finally, the dust settles. It was actually Sam who pulled the alarm. She wanted to give Beatrice time to to hash things out with Connor. So Beatrice decides that while she still wants to marry Teddy, they should postpone their wedding to give herself time to prove herself as queen alone first. Katie, this was a, a wild ride. That was such a good summary. You got everything. You got the fake dating, the uh, the 10 things I hate about you manipulative bribery dating you got uh the arranged marriage that becomes real there's a lot the, the girl who wakes up from the coma there's a lot that happens in this we book. I, we had good source material i did i kind of forgot how much drama happened until i was writing this and i was like oh yeah and this person and this and this it's like a soap opera Such a so soap my opera. editor every single chapter that i write my editor always tells me what's the plot point, what's the plot point, what's happening. And if there's, if it's a quiet chapter where two characters are together and they're, they're not necessarily moving the story forward, those always get cut. So I do have a few cutting room floor chapters that I feel like you guys would like that someday I'll release. My favorite is 
there was like a three chapter sequence of Beatrice's bachelorette party. Oh my God. It was really fun and, and got cut because nothing, we didn't really learn anything new at the bachelorette party. Nothing, no secrets came to light. So it's all gone. But, but that's why it's so plot heavy is because everything that didn't move the story forward got deleted. Where does a princess go on her bachelorette party? So she goes effectively to Soho House. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know if there was a Vegas in your world. There should be a Vegas. I based it actually on Princess Diana's bachelorette party, which was at uh, Annabelle's, which is like the British super elite Soho House that all of the aristocracy are members of. And they all dressed up and had uh, male strippers that were like, I think, firemen or policemen or something. And so I, I did it based on that, which I thought was a really fun one. Oh, my God. That's so fun. So I feel like the first thing we need to discuss is how utterly wrong we were about our predictions. So last year, we did American Royals, which is the first book in the series as our book club. And we ended it with our predictions for what we thought was going to happen in book two. So if we go back, my biggest prediction was that Beatrice was going to abdicate the throne to be with Connor and that Sam was going to have to step up and win over America. That's what I thought too. I don't Neither remember the episode, happened. but and and we also thought that there would somehow find a way for Sam and Teddy to be together, even though he'd publicly been with her sister. Which I realized that one was a stretch. It was a stretch, but it just felt like you were setting us up for that to happen. Neither, none of those things happened, but I will tell you, I was not disappointed either. Yeah, no, I loved it. I feel like everyone kind of got what they needed. Like I felt. Beatrice and Teddy like really blossomed in this, into this wonderful, amazing relationship. Sam got what she needed. Daphne got what she thought she. I loved what Daphne got that she ended up with Jeff and it, but was still miserable because that's kind of the for me that's like the best way to wrap things up with a villain is that the villain gets what they want and then they're still unhappy. I, know, I it's a total hall of victory for her. Yeah. Um. I thought that I couldn't be happy unless Connor and Beatrice ended up together. And we'll talk more about them, like the relationships after this. But I was like pleasantly surprised to find that I was like shipping Beatrice and Teddy real hard. So I'm so glad. When did that change for you? Did it change at Walthorpe? Kind of, but I think it really changed in Nantucket when they were on the beach together. And you just saw that, I don't know that I... I didn't think he was in it for the wrong reasons, but because his family was having money troubles, it didn't seem like he was – he was kind of just, like, resigned to it. And, like, even though he was a good person, it didn't seem like he loved her or was going to make her happy in the long run. But I feel like when they were in Nantucket after she was rejected from Congress, I was truly like, oh, they're going to be great together. I love that. So, wait, Katie, how much of this was planned from the get-go when you started writing book one, did you know where it was going or did you finish book one and you were like, let's blow it all up? I mean, I always blow things up. As you guys know, you read enough of my books that there, I try to always be unpredictable and twisty. And so back when I used to work in publishing as a book editor, we would often talk about, about series and how hard it is to sustain the momentum of a series over multiple books because they can tend to feel predictable and readers do feel like they know what's coming at the end of book one. And you want the characters to change over the course of the series, but not to change so much that they're not 
true to who they were in the early books. So American Royals is the first book is so much fun, but it is very much a princess book, which is, you know, is a recognizable genre. You know, we have the princess diaries, we have the crown and I felt like people kind of knew what it was. And majesty to me was something new because it's a queen book and this is new territory. And so I didn't, I didn't want anything to be predictable or trite. I really wanted to come in with a fresh slate in this book and, and shake things up and take the characters in surprising directions. So I always knew that Teddy was going to be a very viable love interest for Beatrice. To be completely honest, I didn't know who I was going to put her with at the end. And then as I was writing it, I really fell in love with Teddy. And, and I saw this as very much as a writing challenge because I, I realized if I, you know, if I can change your mind and make you root for a different couple than you were rooting for in book one, then I will really have done my job right. So, so that one kind of surprised me along the way of writing, but I'm really happy with where it landed. I have you watched? You probably haven't. Have you watched Shonda Rhimes's Masterclass? No, but I heard you talk about it on the podcast recently, and I actually <laughs> really wanted to. I, I'm very intrigued by it because. I always get the ads for the James Patterson writing ones. And I think, you know, I don't know if I really need to write from James Patterson. But then once it was Shonda, I was like, oh, wait, okay, that that is storytelling by Shonda I could get behind. So it is on my list. It sounds like a very similar approach because she talks about the same thing where at the beginning of every new season, it's like a clean slate where it was like wherever you thought the characters were going. It's like there is no final destination. It's just like you you start over every season as opposed to like being like, we're building towards this thing. Like what is the most surprising or interesting thing that we can do with where these characters are, as opposed to like using three seasons of Grey's to build to this like ultimate reveal. So it's interesting that you say that because I tend to plot my books and think of them as more as TV seasons, which is very much the type of writing and storytelling that Shonda Rhimes is talking about. I think people, especially because I often get the question, you know, like how how in detail do you arc a trilogy before you start? And I think there's a very different type of writing, which is, you know, fantasy or science fiction or, you know, a, a more plot structured type that is to say that the book is built around the plot. And I think the author, the author knows the plot first and the characters come second. Whereas my type of storytelling is actually, even though it is set in a world that is kind of genre-esque because it's it's a speculative made-up world, it has much more in common storytelling-wise with, with a contemporary fiction, with a Jasmine Guillory type of story, which means that it's driven by the characters and not by the plot turns. You know, my characters are not going out on quests to save the world to like defeat some big bad evil person. They are just characters in the world trying to muddle through as best they can, which is exactly how TV, at least like a contemporary TV drama is set up. You should watch her masterclass. It's very good. I feel like I would love to hear your thoughts on it if you do. Okay, I'm going to. We're, we're going to have a separate one-on-one Zoom to like talk about Shonda. I just like love her so much, but. Oh, I'm so in awe of her. I She... I think I told you this on the podcast last time that I stalked Reese Witherspoon aggressively. I also have stalked Shonda. <laughs> like to the point that I emailed their mate. I mean, I called 
their their phone line and like talk to the assistant and have sent them every book of mine. They have never. <laughs> If anyone who's listening has a direct line to Shonda, I I'm still have not gotten in touch with her, but I, I love her and admire her so much. Oh my God, I love that. Okay, let's take a quick break to talk about night. So as you know, we're obsessed with them. We love the pillow. We love the eye mask for sleeping. We love their gold sheet masks. We're obsessed with their scrunchies. Literally everything they do is great, but especially their new face mask. So the brand was founded on using materials that combine efficacy with beauty benefits. So of course, their face mask is so amazing. I have quite a few face masks, but I do not wear any of them except for my night ones. You only wear your night ones. I only wear them. I do. So I feel like a lot of people on Instagram have been complaining about mask knee. And if you are dealing with that, this mask will help. It is so breathable. Um, It's made from 100% silk, which is still protective, but it's also very, very skin friendly. So I have four of these masks and I I do wear my other masks. I like a fashion mask, but this is my favorite mask. It's the best. So since we're all going to be masked up for the foreseeable future – I think it definitely makes sense to invest in a good one that you like the looks of and is good for your skin. So we already covered that this one won't irritate your skin, but it also has such a smart design. It has adjustable ear loops so that it's a snug fit, and it also has the nose clip so that you don't fog up your sunglasses or your regular eyeglasses with your breath, which is so smart. And let's be honest, we care about looking cute. These masks are so cute. Um, They're just really, really pretty, and the construction is beautiful. And now they come in seven pretty colors. Um, They come in emerald green, which is, of course, my favorite. They come in tan, black, gunmetal, and most recently, they added cream and navy. Um, The navy, I really like. Yes, I know. The navy is Becca's favorite. The emerald green is my favorite, but I've been wearing navy a lot. Actually, the one that I wear the most is probably the pink one. Oh, really? Yeah. The pink one was the first one we got, and I feel like I'm like especially loyal to that one. I wore that today. I also feel like it goes with a lot of things because I I try to not like match it to my outfit necessarily, but like coordinate. Oh my God. My favorite like mask sunglass combo is my green silk mask with my green um, article one sunglasses. Oh, no, I like it to be contrast. So I wear my green mask with my pink sunglasses. Oh, funny. I like green and green together. So lastly, you should know that Knight is a female-owned small business. And lately, I've been trying to be more conscious about where I spend my dollars. So I love knowing that it's going to a female-owned small brand. And I also love that for every mask purchased, they're donating five surgical masks to healthcare workers on the front lines of the COVID response. They've already donated 10,000 masks and counting. And also, as a quick aside, we wanted to talk about washing the mask. It's super easy. I just throw it in the sink with some warm water, and I use the laundress detergent that I use for my delicates. And it only takes a few minutes. It dries overnight, and it smells so good. Yeah, I almost posted a story about this the other night because I was washing my bras and my face masks. And I was like, you know, I don't really want to show everyone my bras. Oh, I don't do it together because I feel like sometimes my masks have makeup on them. Oh, funny. I mean, yeah, but I feel like it's all kind of dirty and it gets clean with the detergent. Okay. 
Yeah. But if you want to grab a mask of your own, head to discovernight.com and use code BOP20 to get 20% off your order. The code also works with anything else on their site. So if you're looking to make your home a little cozier, you should also grab their famous signature pillow, which we both just swear by. Again, that is 20% off at discovernight.com with code BOP20. And now back to the episode. So let's talk about Beatrice and Teddy. So this relationship surprised me so much. And it I loved the arc where it went from marriage of convenience, where they were both putting their own needs aside to do what was right for their family to like be tr- being truly a love marriage. Grace, when did you start shipping them? Shipping them? Yeah, like you ship a couple. That's like the slang. I don't know about that slang. <laughs> oh my gosh, did we just teach Grace shipping? I love that. Um, I started... I started to – I really liked both characters all the way in, like, from the first book. I thought they were both just, like, good, sweet people. But you want them both to be happy. And I think – I think it was pretty early on that I was like, oh, I I could like this for her. Like, because I also, like, want her to be the queen and want her to be successful and kind of just pragmatically knew that she could never have all that with Connor. So – I was like pretty early on like into it into it. I kind of wanted to see her loosen up. I wanted her to go with Connor even though he was very like service minded and like regimented from his like military career, but I really wanted Beatrice because it seemed like she had no childhood, like she was just like always in training. Like I wanted her to like loosen her corset strings and like go wild and like live a normal life. And so I felt like she couldn't have that with Teddy. So it was kind of more of like the trappings of what it meant that was holding me up versus like Teddy as a person who I always liked. Yeah, I see that. But I for me, I felt like for her to go with Connor, she'd have to give up so much. She'd have to really give up her family and she would, you know, just really it would be so awful and so dramatic. She'd kind of just blow up her whole, her whole life, whereas Teddy would be that partner who would understand her and understand what her life's been, life's been like, and he probably didn't have much of a childhood either, so they could kind of support each other and, like, be there for each other. Yeah, no, they ended up being incredibly yeah. well-suited to each other. Was this the first sex scene in the book, in the series? I love – so can we say that the outline that you sent over had sex scene as a bullet point? Yeah, it was, it was yeah. Like just, sex, just scene. sex scene. All it said was sex scene. It made my day. Yes, guys, I had – and this is something we can talk about more down the line, but I had to fight really hard for this sex scene. Really? And was this the first I time did, you were in a sex scene? It wasn't like an open door. Yeah. No, it was very – I like to think of it as very lightly done. It was – Yeah, like it yeah. was PG-13. Maybe – it was it PG-13. PG. Yeah, it was PG-13. Yeah, not PG, not R. It wasn't like X-rated. Um, but yeah, have you done – watching this on TV, like you know what's going on, but but they're under the covers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But wait, have you done a sex scene before in your other books? I can't remember it's about It's always been the closed door implied sex yeah. scenes where it sort of fades to black and then you pick up the next day and you find out about it. So you may have seen me post about this. My 91-year-old grandmother read these books and and she got an early copy of Majesty because she's been bored in quarantine and so I gave her one. And her live update, like she texts me every time she has reactions to things and the reactions have been hysterical. So first was Sam and Marshall in the pool. She sent a ton of 
the monkey with its hands over its mouth, like shocked. (laughs) Oh my God. And then when she got to the end, all she wrote was a single sentence, which was, she wrote, Katie, I just got to chapter 34. Oh my period. And that was it. Chapter 34 is Beatrice and Jenny's sex scene. And I love that just her reaction was, oh my. So then, then we talked about it later and I had to explain to her that it was, it was okay (laughs) to be writing these things. But, um, but yes, it, it was, it was the first, it was the first like true on-screen sex scene that I've, that I've done. That's so interesting that you had to fight for it because I feel like even though I guess maybe the first one could be considered YA, this didn't feel like YA to me. Well, your books never feel like YA. They feel like, like something like, yeah, they're about younger characters, but I feel like they're really well suited for adults to read. Yeah. Do you have a lot of teen readers? I have, I think, more adult readers than I have teen readers. I definitely still have some teen readers. And and so to that point, I do try to keep it clean enough that a high school library would be okay stocking it on their shelves. But but the readership tends to be more women in their 20s and 30s. It's interesting that you say that, because I do feel like the characters, I try to make them feel older and more mature. And certainly they are in their early 20s, which is already old for YA. You guys may remember there was a moment in publishing where where editors were trying to create this new this other category called new adult, which actually the Sarah Mass books, which I know Becca loves, I love them, uh, were all categorized as new adult. And I mean, you want to talk steamy sex scenes. I know, nothing, seriously. Nothing compared to hers. And and those are technically listed as ages 14 and up because well, also they- Twilight gets pretty sexy towards the end. Okay, it's also so funny that you brought up Twilight because I have it has not happened yet, but I have many times pitched Royal Baby. Uh, that's like where else can this series go if there were ever more books? Like eventually we're gonna have to do Royal Baby, and everyone keeps telling me I can't do it in YA, and I'm like, you are wrong because Twilight did. Yeah, the baby plotline was all of book four of Twilight. Yeah, and that was like a deranged baby plotline of like, oh my god, the baby eats its way out of Bella's stomach and then falls in love with her ex. Like it was. A deranged baby plotline. Yes. I did not love the baby falling in love with her ex. I didn't that, either. That no. took it a little far for me. But um, but it kind of goes back to what you guys were saying about the books not being predictable. Because I think that yeah, YA books can have a tendency to lean on this trope of first love. And obviously, that's that's just a hallmark of the genre. And it's it's really fun, but not everyone meets their future spouse in high school. So for most of us do not find the person that is our one true love with a capital OTL at age 17 or 19. A lot of us take a lot of false starts and wrong turns. And so for me, it felt very true to life to have the characters realizing that the people they had loved in the first book were not actually the people who were right for them. I think that that realizing that your first love, you know, is just that, which is your first love and someone that mattered to you at that moment in time, but is not the person that you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with. That is like a big turning point and coming of age moment in your 20s that most YA books don't really get to because they kind of just have this big, epic, fun first love moment and then the book ends. So I like that I took it past that to, you know, to to a a more adult relationship for each of the characters. You know, Teddy in particular never really felt right 
for me, for Samantha, I always wanted her to be with someone who was a little bit more her match, someone who's irreverent and snarky, who kind of has the same sort of a party going playboy sensibility, but then underneath is very vulnerable. So, so I was trying to age up the books in that way as well. Well, wait, I don't know if we can talk about this. You can tell me if we need to cut this, but so we did a live show in Dallas in last November and I was desperately trying to get Katie to give me spoilers for majesty. And I don't think you'd finished the book yet. You were still writing it at that point, I think. Right. I was definitely still writing it. Yeah, so you were still writing it. And I remember you like you wouldn't give me any spoilers and we'd had a few margaritas and I remember you getting out of the car and like yelling back and you were like, I think Sam's going to have sex in this book. So were we going to get multiple sex scenes and you could only pick yes, one? Yes, I do have a Sam Marshall sex scene that got cut from Orange. <laughs> so would you like that? You can have it offline. Sure. Can we put it in the Facebook group? Oh, maybe. That could be fun. That could be so um, fun. It it was something I had, like I said, I had to fight for the one that I had. And so my editor basically told me I could not do both. And I forgot that I told you that. I shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> margaritas. I don't margaritas remember this. Do that Clearly I had too many margaritas. Or maybe but, I just uh, wasn't there for that. Yeah. it. I I felt like choosing between those two romantic moments to be fair i think i understood why you know they they happened in chapters that were not consecutive but were very close to each other and she was like we don't need to see both of these moments so you know which one do you want to keep and the beatrice one felt more momentous to me because her her relationship change felt bigger and it just felt like it felt like such an emotional moment for her and and of course it was also for sam but I feel like I can, you know, Sam, you can kind of show it in other ways. And whereas I, I felt like I really did need that to sort of solidify the big change that Beatrice had made from book one to book two. I also feel like it was a very empowered moment of her pursuing sex for enjoyment as opposed to like tradition of consummating the marriage. And so I liked that it happened before the wedding. And I liked that she was the one who was pushing it. Um, and it felt like a very empowered scene and especially because Beatrice is kind of um I don't know just like obligation minded like I liked that she was doing something just for her yeah Beatrice's journey so at at, at the top of each book I always write down again what my character wants and what they need and and what they want is always this is a very like writing getting in the weeds but what they want is always something that should come into conflict with or is different from what they need and Beatrice's want throughout the series is to be the best queen she can be to you know uh to follow duty to be taken seriously and her need is always to be selfish which is so funny because then like the next column over I have Sam's like want is to be selfish and her need is to sort of grow up and mature but um but that is like what Beatrice the whole series is trying is trying to learn that she's allowed to be selfish and have desires and, and do things just because she wants to for herself. Well, let's talk about Beatrice's other plot line, her, her queen plot line of her trying to rule and being told by her Chamberlain. And theoretically he represents some of the American opinion of people who are like, Oh, like she shouldn't be the queen. Um, where her role was just to get married and plan this wedding and to be a figurehead as opposed to like actually 
taking up the mantle that her father left and like actually being the ruler. Um, obviously, I was super frustrated by this because I was like, come on, America. You know, I'm like, I feel like it's a proxy for a female president where it's like, we're ready for a female president. Let's go, Beatrice. Um, but I don't know. This was like such a it felt like this book just had more um, point of view, like it like it was pushing like a feminist agenda. Yes. Uh, so no question that the books, even though they're set in a fictional world, they are not written in a vacuum. So they very much speak to what's happening in the real world and the fact that we you know, continue to not have women in power in America, that this is one of the last countries where the head of state role has never been filled by a woman. I, there's obviously also a lot of Queen Elizabeth and Beatrice in the sense that the queen was also a young woman who came to power at age 22. She actually already had two children when she came to power. Oh, I didn't like, realize I like that. She, yes, she was married at 19 and had Charles and Anne already and, um, and really had to spend a great deal of the early years of her reign going up against people like Robert and, and proving herself and fighting to be taken seriously. And so, you know, now the queen is, is so much... It's been around for so long. She's 94 now, but she has outlasted, I think it's 11 U.S. presidents and and 14 of her own prime ministers. Wow. Most of whom were men. And so it's fun to have her as this this feminist symbol. And and here we are over in America and we've had 11 presidents who were all men and she's and she's been there ruling the whole time. Um, I don't actually know this, but I feel like the British monarchy at this point is more ceremonial than functional. When she first came to power, did she have more of a role in policy or in um, actually ruling the country than than they do now? Not really. So that's why I use the term head of state as opposed to head of the executive branch. And as you clearly know from reading American Royals, that is not how I set things up in the world of American Royals, largely because of the point we had just talked about, because I wanted Beatrice to actually be a woman in power and not just a ceremonial figurehead. So that was early on. I I just made the decision that the American government would look like a hybrid between our current government and the, the British monarchy in the sense that like we still have the Supreme Court and Congress, but the third branch of our government, the executive branch, instead of being a president, is just is just led by by a king or queen, by a president for life. Uh, whereas, of course, in England, you've got the prime minister, and then the monarch carries out all of the ceremonial functions. So, no, Queen Elizabeth has not has not taken and did not formally have a more active role in politics. That said. She has famously gotten very involved in things that she's not supposed to, particularly relating to the Commonwealth. You know, as the Commonwealth has come, has faced conflicts in recent years because it is a large number of nations and they have this very loose agreement. She personally gets very active in trying to manage the, you know, the countries who are in it and to keep them in it. And, um, and in her early days, she traveled all the time. So, so that is one way that she got involved in politics that was like not technically within the wheelhouse of being the monarch. Um, I loved the way that you left the end of this book, too, that Beatrice was 
not going to even though she loved Teddy, they were going to get married, but they weren't going to get married right away to leave her time to come into her own as a ruler. I felt the same. I felt like it was really realistic and feminist, but also sweet. And we still got our love story. Yay. Yeah, we don't need people getting married too young. That's I think everyone has to do some growing up before they get married. Let's take another quick little ad break to talk about one of our newest sponsors, BetterHelp. So BetterHelp offers private, affordable online counseling when you need it from licensed board-accredited therapists via online chat, video, or phone anytime, anywhere. Yes, we think this is such a good idea. With the pandemic, the upcoming election, and so many other things happening in the world right now, BetterHelp is doing really fantastic things and just making a difference. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and then match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe, private online environment. It's so convenient and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling and you can message your counselor anytime from anywhere. So you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly phone or video sessions. And it's more affordable than traditional online counseling and financial aid is available. Yes, and they're really committed to facilitating great matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if you end up needing to. And they have licensed professional counselors who specialize in almost everything. So if you have specific needs, um, you're not just going to get a one-size-fits-all person. They have people who specialize in everything from depression to stress to anxiety to relationships to sleeping to trauma to anger to family conflicts to LGBT matters to grief to self-esteem. I have been checking out their testimonials on their site and People are saying such incredible things about this service. They've really helped so many people. And anything you share is, of course, always confidential. So we want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash bad on paper. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. And again, that is betterhelp.com slash bad on paper. And now back to the episode. Well, let's talk about our other love story from this. So Sam and Marshall, I kind of felt like Teddy and Beatrice was sweet and I was like very happy for them and it was going to be a very like subdued marriage. But I was like, ooh, Sam and Marshall, like they're fun. They're hot. They're like breaking rules. I loved them. I loved the storyline. How did you- I'm so glad. Grace, how did you feel about Teddy versus Marshall for Sam? Oh, I thought, thought it was perfect. See, I felt I... I was like, oh, this is great. He's great. He's 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 fun. He's sarcastic and irreverent, like all the things Katie said earlier. Um, I just felt so much better matched. Like I think that with Teddy and Sam, I think he was like, oh, this is like a cool, interesting princess, and she's young and hot and fun. But like there wasn't like a real he connection. Wasn't fun. He, he wasn't fun. And she needed someone who was just as fun. Yeah. Yeah. I loved him. I was not prepared to like somebody else for Sam. And I really liked Marshall from the get-go. And I also loved hearing about Orange, which I thought was like such a fun tangential plot point. Like just like all the customs and like Orange is meant to be California. And like, see, I thought it was Florida at first and I got confused. And then I realized it was California. (laughs) It does. California have like some kind of orange color or fruit no. association no and i so i didn't realize Florida I oranges 
Yes. You're Grace. You're not the only person. A lot of people have thought it was Florida and I probably should have caught that and clarified it in the first book. But I, it's so funny. Orange, I thought that I just made up out of a vacuum. And then I realized that it afterwards, I was like, because it sounds like it could totally be plausible. It, not surprising because the House of Orange are the royal family of the Netherlands. <laughs> that's why I was like, there is a royal family that's the House of Orange. And I totally stole them. <laughs> it sounded, it had such a nice ring to it. But I definitely was like, oh, Florida, Florida oranges. And I was like, nope. California. Based on the historical context, I gathered that it was California, just based on like the history of like joining the union and um, yeah, like people. And that it was so far away. Yeah. Um, But I thought it was so fun hearing about like the customs of like this duchy because I feel like in the first book, we didn't really get into any of the other duchies. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Okay. I was like, it's a word that I've seen Such written, a British but I'm word. not positive I've ever said out loud. And I was like, I don't know if this is right. It's actually a douchey. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I feel like in the first book, we heard about the other duchies, but we didn't see any of them. So it was fun to go to Orange and to like see more of the I, more of the fictional United States. I know. I, I always love getting the world a little bit bigger in each book, which which was it was really fun to have an excuse to do that. But outside of being fun and getting to see more of the country, it also brought a really interesting element because it was an interracial relationship. And while Nina is um, Latina or half Latina? Yeah, she she's, has at least one Latina mom. Yeah, so she has yes. one Latina mom. So there was that element in the first book, but he was um, a black man. And there was definitely a lot of plot points about what would be said about his relationship with Sam. And I thought that that brought like a very interesting depth to and like a reality to their relationship where it wasn't just about they have feelings for each other and would their parents care, but it was also about like, how will this be perceived? Yes. So unfortunately, you know, the, the portrayal of Meghan Markle in the press had, as I was working on this book, continued to be negative and to be an issue. And even after the birth of their son, Archie, you know, Megan still faced a lot of opposition from the press and a lot of negativity. And so I had always known that I wanted, as I said, to have this new relationship for Sam. And then particularly because I was taking Nina away from the spotlight, you know, I really wanted a vehicle to show sort of what it's like to be an outsider and particularly a person of color who is dating someone in the royal family and how that puts you and your family into scrutiny. And I feel like you told me previously, some of this is like ripped from the headlines in terms of like repurposing comments and coverage about Meghan Markle into being things that were being said about Marshall, right? Some definite. Okay, let me start. Over. I thought you did that more with Daphne and Kate Middleton, but we can talk about that one. Oh, too. I thought you were saying at one point you were like reading the comments thread of like something about Meghan Markle. So that was about Nina. I'm oh, trying to think. Cause I'm like, I know. Yeah, there was. There oh, were. there was all the stuff with Nina, too. There was definitely, definitely the the headlines about Marshall were inspired by the real life headlines, but it was book one's scene of Nina when Nina is reading the comments about her in the online article. Those are taken word for word from the video, the engagement video that they posted. So the official uh, Meghan and Harry engagement video that's on the Buckingham Palace YouTube channel I literally just went over to it because I was trying to think, you know, what are some trolley comments I can write? I don't, 
I don't really know how to like be super mean about this naturally. Let's just like use them as inspiration and starting places. And then they were also the mean comments were just so mean that I just decided to take them word for word. I was like, I can't improve upon this. These people are awful. I'm just going to use them. You're like, I can't out troll these trolls. I can't. Well, I tried out troll the troll. Just, just at least one good thing came from them, which is that I stole their words and put them in the book. <laughs> oh, um, but you wanted to talk about Daphne as Kate Middleton. I, that's what oh, I really yeah. want to talk about because you were when we did the we had like a little trivia night um, with some influencers as a pre-launch of this book. I think a few weeks ago, a month ago. What is it time? was so fun. It was so what, fun. Time is a myth, guys. I came in almost last place on trivia. I know nothing about the real royals. But you I I've never never I've never I also know nothing about the real royals and you had mentioned this whole thing about all of the scrutiny that Kate Middleton got and what were they called the the Viner sisters Vine the Wisteria Wisteria cuz they climb like a vine. You explain it because I found this so interesting. So I, this was all also news to me because I'm probably similar to you guys in that by the time that I became a fan of the royal family, Kate was already a pretty established part of it. You know, I, I, I really escalated my interest with the William and Kate royal wedding. So I missed out on sort of the early years of their relationship. But as I've been reading various biographies, in particular, a really good William biography, I learned so much about what Kate went through because, and again, it's, it's not the same as what Megan went through by any means, but still William is the heir. The country is very protective of him. And Kate comes from this upper middle-class background and her mom, Carol, actually used to be a flight attendant for British Airways. And then her father started this party planning business where they make, you know, they make like plastic silverware and tablecloths and like party goods for small children. And so they're very self-made people. And there's just this inherent snobbery in England that, you know, whoever marries the future king should be better than that. And so there was the the press in particular can be awful. And they they didn't like Kate. They initially cast her as a social climber and they glommed onto a few true details about her life including the fact that she was actually supposed to go to a different school. And then when William announced that he was going to St. Andrews, she, she changed over the summer and, and re-put in her application to go to St. Andrews. So she transferred. And, and who knows why she transferred, but of course everyone always said, well, she transferred so that she could be at school with him. And when she was in high school, her, her high school boarding school, she had a poster of William on the wall which again, probably every single girl in England had a poster of him on the wall. Like his heartthrob days, he yeah. was like he was such a heartthrob. And so they took these kinds of facts and basically spun this narrative that she had spent her whole life trying to, you know, trying to marry him, and that it was all her mom Carol's plan, and that they they just decided that they were going to be royalty, and and so Kate and Pippa were then very derogatorily called the Wisteria sisters because they, they're they pretty to look at and they climb frighteningly fast, which is just so mean. Only the British can come up with like these like 
insults that kind of sound at first like they're a compliment and then yeah. you're like oh no, that's, yeah like that's a really awful. cutting plant-based jab you would think would be like uh, kind of boring and you're like oh no that that cuts and then say it in a british accent and it sounds lovely <laughs> exactly so so i really loved kind of taking out oh, again like i think that's just an outlandish you know an outlandish way of thinking about kate but it's such a fun narrative and particularly feels to me like something out of a historical fiction novel. You know, you don't see you don't see women in the modern age trying to marry princes. That's like something that happened in Tudor times. And so it's I just thought it would be so fun to imagine like what would that look like if you were actually a young woman in the modern age who planned your whole life around being a princess, what would motivate you? How how would you go about it? And then of course you know, what, what is it that you really want that you end up giving up on in order to become royalty? I feel like your explanation of the character that she was based on made me like Daphne so much more because I mean, obviously the book needs conflict and it needs a villain, but I was like, Daphne, get out of here. I feel like I felt very satisfied where, with where Beatrice ended up and with where Sam ended up. And I was like, God, Jeff, you got to, you got to wake up. Got to do better, Jeff. Oh, he was so dumb. But I know, poor Jeff. I kind he's, of like that he was like dumb boy. Dumb. Yeah, I mean, and even Nina, where it was like, okay, her and Ethan could have this like outsider romance, and it was like, and Jeff, you just don't know what's good for you. Yeah. But isn't that how college age men are? Absolutely, <laughs> really dumb. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely, but if you if he wasn't going to end up with Nina, which I'm fine with. I was like, okay, Jeff, we got to get you someone other than Daphne. (laughs) Yeah. But I felt more sympathetic to Daphne in this book because you saw what she was going through. And like, I'm not saying I, 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 I was really coming around on her. And then the last bit, like the way that she acted at the wedding in particular, I was just like, oh no, I don't like you. Oh, I was so scandalized before the wedding when she went and threatened Beatrice. Oh my God. Yes. That was wild. But up until the threat, I feel like she she was growing on me. And I was like, oh, I hope maybe she'll have a redemption. Maybe Katie will, like, make her nice. But then she just went back to her old ways. Well, not everyone yeah, can learn their Yeah, a story lessons. is yeah. only ever as strong as its villain. And and it was something new for me to, to kind of end the villain with, like we said earlier, getting everything she thought that she wanted and having it all just completely hollow, having none of it actually make her happy. So we I could discuss this book for days. I don't know what that says about me that I'm like not real politics, but I'm like fictional politics. I could discuss for days. Um, but we had a couple questions that we wanted to ask you before we let you go. So I'm actually really curious, was this book harder or easier to write than the first? This book was so much harder than the first, which it should not be. I always thought that sequels would be easier. And this was true of the Dazzling Heights as well in the Thousand Floor trilogy that it was once I had, the more I had written, the harder it got. I found this one particularly tricky because I was engaging in a very delicate balancing act where, as we talked about offline, we, I don't know if there's a book three yet. And well, so- Well, that was my next question. We have to go into that. I yeah. know. We can, I- Maybe fingers crossed. Royal We're baby? all hoping. American so, baby. Royal, ba- yeah, they still won't let me do that. <laughs> even in a third book, I'll continue to get shot down on Royal Baby. <laughs> That'll have to be like 
the ages 18 and up spinoff or something. <laughs> Royal well, American Royals after dark. Um, so because I didn't know if there was a third book, I, I originally actually thought that the publisher might buy a third book while I was working on book two. I tried to plot book two as if it was the ending because right now, like I said, it's just the duology and right now this is all there is so that it would be satisfying to readers if this is all there is. But also I tried to think about if there's a third book, what do I need to do in the second book to tee up the third book? So I had to be quietly laying some train tracks for myself to then if there is a third book, I can get back in because what I don't want to happen is like have written myself into a totally everything's tied up in a very neat bow and the world is, is completely resolved. And then if there is a third book, like I have to go back in and undo all of that. Now, to be fair, Shonda Rhimes would say it doesn't matter. She would say like, you just come in every season and you blow things up at the beginning and like start the story over. But, um, but I really, I did kind of want there to be, you know, the optionality for a third. So I, it was really hard for me to try to figure out like how much do I resolve and how much do I leave open-ended in case there are more books and like, where do I make those choices? I can only imagine. How do you, what's your process? How do you keep track of so many different characters and plot lines? Because it felt like this book more so than the last one that we kind of had like four equal main characters. I am very much an outliner. And so I start, I start by thinking big picture about what each of the characters needs from this book and kind of what their most fun story would be. And then I, I try to find ways to cross and intersect those stories as much as possible. Because I think the fun of having the multiple narrators comes from all the places that the stories come into conflict. So any moment that like Daphne and Nina both want the same thing or Daphne's blackmailing Beatrice. You know, we'd never really seen like a Daphne Beatrice scene before that. Or, you know, Daphne and Samantha. I'm listening a lot of Daphne moments only because she <laughs> usually, usually her story is pretty isolated. In this book, I was able to get her into princess lessons with Sam and kind of find all these ways to really involve her in everyone else's trajectory. And so that, that tends to come from me like being up at the whiteboard, literally. I'm very visual. So I'm literally looking at the story beats and trying to see where I can intersect them. So I have a huge whiteboard in my office. It's however big you think it is, it's bigger. <laughs> it takes up <laughs> most of a wall. It's like sitting in a classroom and I'm, uh, it, I will stand there and like write and draw arrows and color code and all that. And then once I'm sort of resolved there, then I get into a Microsoft Word document and try to start putting things in order. And then eventually I end up with like the type of outline that I sent you, Becca, which is at the very end. But there are a lot of iterations before that and a lot of changes. And as I think I've told you guys before, Sam's story, even in this book, changed a lot just from the first draft to the final draft. So actually she didn't have, in the very first draft, she did not have a romance with Marshall at all because I felt like she had this whole different story where she went to college and was at school with Nina and like their friendship was tested and she was kind of trying to be an ordinary person, but couldn't, but that was coming into conflict with her needing to be the heir to the throne. And it, it, I thought it would be fun and just none of it felt very fun. And so, and I had shied away from giving her a new love interest because I felt like everybody else was on this romantic path. 
And I felt like four out of four stories can't be romances. And then I was actually, I was just on a call with my editor after the second draft. And we were like, Sam's story is really feeling boring. And she was like, forget it. Like, I know we said we're not going to give her a romance, but just like, can you just write a romance for her? Because these are romance books and let's just see what happens. And her romance ended up being arguably my favorite of the book. It's so fun. And it like came in in the 11th hour. Like when I talked to you in November after the live show, I think that was like, I was probably writing those chapters for the first time. Oh, wow. In in, in January. So, so the book was yeah. finished in January of 2020. Yes. Oh, wow. Right before the world fell apart. Oh, oh my man. gosh. Okay. So you said that there's not definitely a third book. How does that work from the publishing perspective? And also, how can we make sure that there's a yeah, third book? Yeah, what can we do to get a third book? Do we need people to just Who do buy I need like to talk to? thousands of copies of Majesty? That would be wonderful. Um, no, I, I anything it, to get a third book is just the same of like supporting any book that you care about, which is buying a copy if you can. If you can't buy a copy, requesting it from your local library or you know finding another way to read it, borrowing it from someone, and just and spreading the word like posting, sharing. Reviews make a big difference, actually, whether they're on, you know, personal websites or or Instagram or um, the retail sites like an Amazon or a Goodreads. Like all those things just continue to make the publisher feel like the book is continuing to build buzz. So they they make these decisions. When I sold the Thousand Floor books, you know, as you guys know, I sold them as a trilogy. So I was able to arc it over the three books. And that, to me, was very much indicative of the difference between selling a book in 2015 and selling a book in 2018 was publishing has just gotten a little more cautious, which makes complete sense. And they're they're just not willing to commit to series quite that early anymore. You know, if they if they buy three books or and there used to be an era where I remember when I was working in publishing, they would buy seven books sometimes. Oh my god. They would have an author that they loved and they would be like, we're just gonna buy her next 10 books so that we have her on lock for the next decade of her life. And that so has changed because people just don't know what's gonna work. They don't know, you know, the market is constantly shifting. There's so much content out there. And so they, they're trying to cover their bases and just do things much more like one project at a time. So honestly, I was actually lucky to even get it sold as two books. Um, oh, so, so you we sold it see. as two books. So from the get-go, there were always two. There were always two, which is how I was able to end book one on such a massive cliffhanger. Okay. Because I knew that I had a sequel to resolve things. Okay. And so we need to create a lot of buzz about this book so we can get a third. So we'll see. I think, I mean, I'm, I have such a great relationship with my editor and she's so amazing. And I know that she would do a third. It's all just kind of waiting to see. It's just waiting to, to like, until they have more numbers for book two and kind of have a better sense for the series as a whole. And then they can decide. Do you want to write a third? Yes. I, yes, I feel like I have to write a third you guys are not going to agree with this, but for Daphne's sake, for I mean, oh, particularly for I would Daphne's game sake, to read it. I just know that, like, for instance, um, uh, we're so obsessed with the idea of you, and Robin Lee does not want to write a sequel, even though it feels like there's so many people clamoring for it. So I just wanted to know if you were like, yeah, no, I want to be annoying if you don't want to write it. Yeah, no, I mean contractually, even if I wanted to write it, 
and not like, like my publisher is the only place that it can go. Does that make sense? So yeah. I'm, I'm actually not even allowed to write it and like put it up for free on my website, which I wouldn't do. Cause that would be a long year's worth of work to, you know, have no income from, but, but I, I like, I can't even legally write it. I think for five years in, unless it's through them. So, um, so we're, we're just waiting to see, but yeah, like I said, I feel like that was my biggest gamble was ending because I am happy with where most of the characters landed, but I feel like Daphne still has, she still has some reckoning to do. And, and Jeff, as we've agreed, needs to kind of wisen up. And so their story is the most, like has the most to, to lose from this being just the two books. Like that they really, they both, they both have different endings that they need. We didn't really hear much about Jeff in this book. Like he was so central to book one. So I would like to hear, maybe make him a little bit less dumb. And, I know there are only also, so many pages and I, Ethan yeah. took such a surprising central role in this book. Like once I came up with the Nina Ethan storyline and the, and the really fun Daphne asking Ethan to spy on Nina, which is like straight out of a nineties rom-com. Oh, it and totally was. In a way. Yeah. There just wasn't room to do a lot with Jeff, but I, I do, I am sad about that too, because I feel like there were, there were, he, he was off screen for quite a lot of the book. And there were a few moments where I tried to work him in and then it just, the story again, just like they were chapters that didn't really matter. Like there was a Beatrice, Sam, Jeff sort of hangout family chapter where they were up in like the games room effectively, but they're and like, they were talking about their dad and it was like sweet, but it, it just wasn't really useful. So that, that got trashed. So <laughs> there's a lot of, there were like a lot of Jeff moments where I just, I felt like I didn't know what to do with him. Poor Jeff. I know. But wait, what are you working on now? Aside from growing a baby and taking so many naps. Um, I am working on something new that has been, it's, I've been working on it all pretty much at least since March or April. So all summer. And I had forgotten how hard these early stages are. So it has been many years since I was in the very beginning of a project because even with American Royals, I still had, even when I went back to it in 2018, I had done kind of the initial legwork of like coming up with the world and the characters earlier. So I was able to pick it back up and really run with it. Whereas this is like starting over from scratch and it's an entirely new concept and it just, it has taken a lot of iterating and I forgot how hard the beginning is. And I think this is, if there are any like aspiring writers listening, I think um, this is where people fall off and it, it, it makes sense because this is like the ugliest part of the process. It's just like actually getting all the characters in the world, right? So all that is to say that I I can tend to feel very frustrated because I look back and I'm like, I've been working on this project for five months and all I have to show for it are like four documents that I, that are not right. <laughs> and one document that might finally be the right direction, but is, I'm, but is 20 pages. You know, I've, I've written the first 60 pages, like three or four different times. And then I keep changing things. So it is really fun. It is adult. So the characters are all in their late twenties and some are in their early thirties and it is very, it is contemporary. So it's set, it is not set in like an alternate world It is set very much in our world and it is following 
a complicated family and like people who are related to the family. So there, there are of course um, secrets from the past that are coming to light and forbidden love and complicated relationships and money and drama and high stakes and a big, unsurprisingly a big black tie party towards the end of the book where all, all of the shit hits the fan all at once. Uh, so kind of everything that you come to expect from a Catherine McGee novel, but a little more grown up and, and set in the, a contemporary world. Oh, I'm, I'd be so excited about that. That sounds so fun. Me too. I can't wait to read it. I love any juicy, rich family books. Yeah, same. Wait, do you have, speaking of like quarantine and everything else, what have you read lately that's been good? Yeah, do you have any good quarantine book recs? So I, I've i read a few that I loved. Um, I really liked, I don't think you guys ever talked about this one on the podcast, but I think Grace has read it. I really loved American Wife by Curtis Sittenfeld, which I, which came out forever ago and I had never read. Oh, it's never a read lot that. of fun and kind of, and it surprised me how much I liked it because, um, because I knew sort of superficially what the story was, but I did not, I did not expect to love it so much. It's basically the behind the scenes, it's like a Romana Clay, you know, a book about Laura Bush without calling oh. her Laura I really want to read that because I haven't read it, but when I read Rodham, okay. so many people were being were like, "Oh, how did, how does this compare to Maybe American that's Life? what I was going to ask you because you really liked Rodham, right? And I that's on my list. I have not read it yet. Yes, I loved Rodham, and I think I'd really enjoy a book about a fictional Laura Bush as well. It was so interesting to me because I did not know how liberal Laura Bush is. Like I learned so much in this book and basically she like that's the whole premise of the book is can you be married to somebody whose political views are completely the opposite of the spectrum of yours and then oh wait they start to run for president wow. so that was really fun i've got to just read it is it's not new so i feel like i sh- like I, sometimes with older books like i don't read them because i feel like for like the blog and the podcast we have to be like on the pulse of things I but know. i really want to read it I loved that. And then I really loved Pretty Things by Janelle Brown. Has either of you read that one? No. So it is this kind of domestic suspense following two women. One of them is a con artist and the other is like a a wealthy heiress who's also an Instagram influencer. So you'll like that part. And basically the con artist sets out to con the influencer out of all her money. And Grace is over I, here on I'm, Amazon I'm buying it right now. Yes, I'm buying – I'm on Bookshop because it's that's better. It's so fun. I'm pretty yeah. sure it was optioned by by somebody, by Amazon. Somebody wants to make a TV show of it. And so I was – and the cover is really pretty. It's covered in like jewelry. Yeah. Oh, I'm jewelry. all over both of these. Wait, give us more. Give us more. <laughs> <laughs> No, those are the those are the main ones that I've yeah. loved. And then as I told you guys, I just read the comeback with you last month, which was really fun. Um, Katie, you have had the best guest. I loved talking about this with you and getting kind of like the inside scoop along with our conversation on the paths not taken and the things that were on the cutting room floor and like the behind <laughs> the scenes drama. This was so fun. But can you tell people where they can follow you, where they can find you, what they can do for you? Yes. So I am on social at Catherine McGee, and that is spelled the Catherine Hepburn way, the K-T-H-A-R-I-N-E, and, um, and on my website at CatherineMcGee.com. 
and you can buy American Royals and Majesty anywhere that books are sold on ebook, on audiobook, or in hardcover. And you can also go back and read her first series, which we also loved, and we have a podcast episode about with her first podcast appearance called The Thousandth Floor. Yes. Yes. So let's get to some end matter. Let's talk about, should we do Instagram obsessions? You should. I don't have one. Oh my God, I have two. So the first one is called The Daily Tay. Did you see I was sharing her stories? Like, Is she her- the one who was doing the ones making fun of influencers? Yes. Yeah. So I get defensive when they're like mean-spirited, but she somehow does it in like a funny and cute way. She's also adorable. She looks like, I feel like she looks like a cross between J.C. Dupree and Kate Kennedy. Um, she's very cute, blonde girl, pregnant, and just so cheeky. And she just makes me laugh so hard. I love following her. So her Instagram is called, I don't know if I even said it, it's The Daily Tay. And I just cry watching all of her new stuff, whether it's influencer related or not. Like I got hooked because of the influencer content. Like she does like influencer lingo and she's like, hey guys, like I'm, and she's like panning around her really clean apartment. She's like, I'm so sorry about the mess. Or she was like, let me tell you what's in my latte. And she's like going on about pumpkin spice and she's like, and Tula. I don't know. (laughs) It just, it cracked me up. So I love her. And then another person on Instagram that I just wanted to spotlight what she's doing because I think it's really cool is Sydney Summer. So Sydney, it's spelled S-Y-D-N-E, Summer. Um, she's an influencer and like her her feed is great, like all of the things. But what she started doing during the pandemic, and I feel like all influencers have had to get a little more creative with their revenue streams and everything else, she's launched a shop. So she sells really, really cute face masks in her shop, but she also just launched loungewear. I'm wearing this set right now. Oh, um, is that where that's from? I thought yeah. it was Natum. No, it's not. It's just like a cute, it's a little short set and a crew neck. I'll put it on my Instagram, but it's so soft and so cute. And I just think I admire that entrepreneurial spirit. I don't know how she's managed to launch. Oh, she has mask chains. It. Yeah. It's just like so. Yeah. Oh, it's super soft. Oh. Co- yeah, it's super soft cotton jersey. There's also an off the shoulder top. There's lounge pants. I just think BRB. <laughs> she's doing a great job. And I really admire like the fact that she's launched this whole business during the pandemic. I think she's really smart. And um, I think it's cool. That's all. So I buy it on her site or I buy it. Oh, see at the top of go to sydneysummer.com and at the top it says lounge. Oh, she has scrunchies. She's got a lot of cool stuff. I'm just very impressed that she did this. That's all. Are we going to match? Do I Do they have other colors? They have a really nice marled black set. You should get that one. Okay, that's what I'll do. I got the rosewood crew neck and shorts and she gifted them to me cuz we're friends. They're but- not expensive. It's $38 for the shorts and $48 for the top. Yeah, it's good. It's not crazy. And How does sizing run? The quality is good. It's good. I'm wearing a medium. It's like pretty loose. I okay. think it's true to size. Okay. Yeah. Into it. The shorts are a little tight in the waistband, but I'm also I've just like I, we've I talked feel, about weight gain. <laughs> I feel better about it being shorts. I would be very skeptical of the pants. Oh, interesting. I think the pants would be fine. We have different problems. Okay. They. I mean, I feel like I'm a little skeptical because they're um, wide, like yeah. wide bottom, that they would be um, like high waters. Oh, interesting. Well, I love the shorts. I think the pants are cute. They might be a little short on you. I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. So should we do regular obsessions? Yeah. So to make up for the fact that I didn't have an Instagram obsession, I have many 
obsession obsessions. Okay. So the first thing is that I I don't know why I'm making such a big deal out of this, but I bought more Beyond Yoga bike shorts for myself as part as a birthday present to myself. How many Beyond Yoga how many pairs of bike shorts does one person need? Okay, so that's the thing. How many do you have? Okay, so I have five pairs total of bike shorts. And then I have three pairs of the Beyond Yoga ones. But the Beyond Yoga ones are by and far my favorite. But, <laughs> but they're like $100. No, they're like $80. And it <laughs> is stupid. It's it's stupid in and of itself. And it's stupid that I don't need five pairs of bike shorts. Although now I'm going to wear them to SoulCycle every home. day. Yeah. But I also just like them for like lounge. I'm wearing some right now with a big t-shirt. Yeah. I think so, that's actually reasonable. They're, I just love them so much. They're the best ones. You've I, talked about bike shorts so many times. I thought you had like 20 pairs. No, I have five. But if you work out every day, you need them. Yeah, but I'd never worked out in bike shorts before. So usually I have a ton of like long okay. yoga pants yeah. and like capris. Anyway, but I just like these so much. So for my birthday, I was like, screw it. I'm going to buy two more pairs. And I'm so happy. So I got those. And then... I joined a Facebook group for Soul Cycle at Home, and like you're lighting up like a little kid. <laughs> like she, you guys, I, she is glowing talking about this Facebook group. I'm like a super user. Like I am so obsessed with it. That's how I am with Melissa Wood. Like I comment on her videos. I'm like, great workout today, Melissa. Like it's creepy. No, there's not instructors. It's like a community led group. Like it's not official in any way whatsoever. Okay, but I'm super into that. Um, and it it actually helped because I. I had some questions about like my meter resetting or like I haven't heard of some of the instructors. So it is very helpful, but I'm like very into this Facebook group. I feel like a I like a good Facebook group. I'm I'm a very avid Facebook group user of a few different Facebook groups. Anyway, then have you seen John Mulaney's stand-up special, the most recent one? It's from 2018. It's not new. No. Have you seen any of John Mulaney's stand-up? No. Oh my god, you should. You would like it. Okay. So I'm John put it on my list. Mulaney is just so funny in general, but I saw I went down this is rabbit hole. Is it on hole. Netflix? Yeah, it's on Netflix. I went down this rabbit hole cuz I saw a TikTok and it was this woman and she was like, "What John Mulaney stand-up bit lives rent-free in your head?" And there was this bit about how Trump is basically like the equivalent of there being a horse loose in a hospital where he's like, "Eventually I think it's going to be okay, but like I do not know what's going to happen next." <laughs> That's amazing. It was so funny. And so I looked it up and I was like, oh, I haven't seen this. And I realized that there was a stand-up special that I hadn't seen. I watched it last night, Grace. I was I was by myself. I was dead sober. I was crying laughing. That's how I was with the Daily Taze Instagram videos, like sitting like cackling to myself alone in my apartment. Oh my God, watch it. It's the okay. it's the newest one. Okay. I'm, that isn't I have, new. I have dinner plans tonight, but maybe when I get home. It was so funny. I'm so excited. Oh, <sighs> I didn't put this in the in the notes, but I recently made a really wonderful purchase. Alex was over and I was we were we were like, what should we watch? What should we watch? And we saw that Harry Potter for some reason was trending on Apple. And sidebar, I know JK Rowling is problematic and I do not like her anymore, but I mean Harry Potter lives on. I bought the whole like virtual box set of the movies have you watched them all yet no we just watched the first one are we gonna watch another one on sunday for um, your birthday yes let's do it and get sushi yeah, yeah. or your salad yeah what it's your birthday whatever you want i want the i don't know it depends what i'll want okay we'll figure it out but yeah i just i love harry potter and it's like giving me all of the nostalgic feels i do feel guilty because i know jk is 
quite problematic and I don't want to like get in trouble or like support her, but I love these movies so much. They just are really comforting and reassuring. Um, the other thing that I'm obsessed with is I, this week, like as background noise while I worked, because I had like a lot of image editing and stuff to do. And when I do images, I tend to put something on either a podcast or a TV show because I can kind of multitask. The Home Edit TV show. Have you seen it? I haven't. So um, it's interesting because... Because you're a bigger fan of them than I am. I was, but I, I've kind of soured on them a little. See, I soured on them too. I, I soured on them. <laughs> like there were a couple problematic things. And then... Yeah. Um, they were not great during COVID. I, I don't know how to say this without... I, because I I could so see somebody saying this about me and I would I would obviously take issue with it. So I want to be empathetic, but like it feels like they've both gotten a little too big for their britches in a way that I don't like. Yeah, I know. I think people could say that about me too. So I want I don't want but I feel I don't know. The show is great though. Is it? The show is great for two, a couple of reasons. So, first of all, it's just like mindless and fun to put on in the background when There's you're doing something. There's such good people. Else. Like Reese Witherspoon's in it, Retta is in it. Yes. Like. So, that's what I love is you go inside these celebrity homes and you kind of see like that they're just like normal people too and like have messy, messy homes oh. and like things to organize. Unrelated, but um, did you see that? Who's Lizzie McGuire? What, uh, Hillary. Hillary Duff. Duff. Yes. Um, just did an architectural digest i guess they just shot her house and she shared the photos on her instagram and like oh my goodness i would like to live there oh that's really good i'm gonna look that up speaking of celebrity homes um i like hillary i love i love her i think she's really cute i also like that song that she released kind of recently like a couple years ago that didn't really go anywhere i don't know what you're talking about i can't i can't remember the name of it it'll sometimes come on my like um Spotify daily mixes and I'm always like this is a bop who is this and I'm like oh it's Hillary Duff ah good for her I like that they go in the celebrity homes but then they also have like a normal people like they do two two people's homes in every episode and the normal people it's like a lot more relatable so you get like this like luxury and seeing a fun celebrity and you get like a normal person that is makes- it heartwarming is it like queer eye it's heartwarming okay it's cute because you see it really like changes people's lives like they're so organized and can like do so much more so I actually was really influenced by the show because one of the clients um it was this woman she was like so sweet and so cute and she just went through a divorce i sound like such a like this sounds like an ad but she had just gone through a divorce and she was like like getting back on her feet and she had come out of the closet and had moved into a smaller home which was very disorganized and they gave her this jewelry box and I was like, I want that fucking jewelry box because it's these beautiful trays that stack on top of each other. So you can just like lift one up and then like put it and you can configure it however you want. Like I need like a bunch of small boxes to store my delicate necklaces individually so they don't get tangled. But I don't want like all of those ring slots because I only have a handful of rings. So I don't want like they always have like rings and like things I don't need. So I bought on the container store so this is where you get it because isn't it like they have a collection that launched the same day so it's like all this like product integration so I was kind of like I felt like kind of like I don't know as like a consumer I was like "Mm." like I'm like overly supporting them but this the these jewelry boxes are fantastic so it's just like trays and it was pretty affordable I got four trays um, with the top because there's like a, a lid that, that does have those padded inserts and all the other stuff. So that's good. I have one of those. But then I have all these boxes to put my bracelets and, and necklaces in. And um, 
It was like $100 for all four of them. That's not bad. Yeah, it's really pretty. So I'm excited. But the show is great and it's really influencing me because I'm like, oh, I need that thing. Oh, I need I, I need acrylic purse hooks. Like- I, I mean, I love organizational TikTok. Like whenever I see stuff on there with like little hacks. So yeah. I'm sure I would like it. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I I agree with some of the things you said. I don't follow their Instagram, but the show was really fun and, and mindless and, and good. Okay, good to yeah. know. And I learned some cool tips. I feel like we both read the same things and have the same feelings on them. So, like, how do we do this? Do you want me to Should take this be one like and a mini you take book club? One? Yeah, and we'll just chime in. I don't think we have enough time for a mini book club. Well, no, not a real mini book club, but like yeah. we Which, can each give our thoughts. Okay, I'll take the first. I, I feel like there's an obvious division here. Okay. So we both read the same things. Yes. <laughs> so um, the first one is The Roommate by Rosie Danon. I hope I'm saying that right, but I'm not sure, to be honest with you. So this is a new romance, and I have seen people raving. Raving, like fanatically. And Ashley Spivey said that it was like as steamy as the idea of you. Hit has been on about it. Like I've seen it a lot of places, and a lot of people are going nuts for it. Like going absolutely bonkers. So I enjoyed it. I certainly didn't enjoy it as much as everyone else did, and I think the hype kind of soured me a little bit. Yeah. I don't like being set up for a book because it always fails my expectations. Totally. So it's a a romance. And fast forward, just like do forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear the spoiler. Um, The guy is a porn star is the thing. But this comes out in the beginning of the book. So it's not really a a huge spoiler. It's not a huge spoiler. But I feel like that's like part of the twist. Yeah. And the problem that I had with the book was that I just didn't like the girl. I liked him. I liked it was Stevie, but I didn't love her. I wasn't I, rooting for her. I didn't love her. I felt like it was super implausible. I know that these romance books are like an escape and stuff, but I was just like, this would never happen. Like none of this would ever happen. Yeah. And also I was like, fix your own problems. Like the whole thing was about how afraid she was of her mom. And I was like, so afraid of her mom. She was really annoying. So uptight. But like, if you... This is, I feel like we're being negative for the sake of being negative. Like, if you enjoy steamy romances, like if you like a good Christina Lauren, if you like a Jasmine Guillory, if like that's your wheelhouse, like you'll probably like this. You'll like it. It's, and it's gonna be like one of those books you can read in a night and it's just like a great escape. And so when I reviewed it, I gave it, I think, like a B, but I was like, but don't be discouraged by like the things I, the problems I have with it because I still think that at this time, in our lives like oh, totally. it's a book that we can all like use to escape totally i read it in one night and it was like a great night but i was just like eh. am i gonna go on the offensive for this book the same way that i want to shove the idea of you in everyone's hands yes no yes okay so you do the other one so my other one that we both read is grown by tiffany d jackson we both had pre-ordered this um I loved it. So I love her book. She's become one of my favorite authors. I was surprised by this because I was under the impression that it was YA. I would be concerned if teenagers were reading this. Yeah. So I struggle with that too because all of her books are kind of this way. It kind of seemed like it was like about a teen character but not actually YA because it's really effing dark. It's really – it's like dark YA for grownups. So this one is about – a girl, um, like she just dreams of being a singer. She her, she grows up kind of poor. I mean, she she lives in Westchester, so I don't think her family was that poor, but um, they were struggling because they had four kids and 
just she couldn't do a lot of things she wanted. Like she wanted to go to singing lessons. She wanted to pursue this, but her parents didn't want her to. So she goes and tries out for some show. I forget what it is. It's not important. And she meets this famous, famous singer-songwriter, Corey Fields. And he is like, I, I mean, I think that the book is loosely based on R. Kelly. Yeah, um, there's like a there's an author's note at the end that says like this is not at all based on R. Kelly. But yeah. I, I kind of read it as like Please we don't legally sue me. Yeah, we legally had to put this in here, but this is one hundred percent based on R. Kelly. Yeah. So he like but he takes her under his wing and at first you're like, oh, this could be good, but you know that it's a dark book. So you know that it's not gonna Well so it's told in two timelines. So yes. it's told in the first timeline, I think in the first chapter, oh yeah. Um she wakes up and he's murdered. Mm-hmm. And um, she's the only one in the apartment. And then the second timeline, it's like a year earlier where she's like his little protege. So you know that thing, bad things are going to happen. Also, with this book, there are like a thousand trigger warnings. Yeah. If you have any trigger, don't, anything. Don't read this book. Like if you are somebody who says, I like, is there a trigger warning on this book? If you are the type of person who would ask that. Don't read this. Don't read this. It, even the Any first trigger. The first page of the book is like a list of triggers. Yeah, like opioid abuse, rape, kidnapping. Literally, literally every any trigger you might have. Yeah, this book will. It's it's dark, but I really liked it, and I really I couldn't liked, put it down. I read it in one day. Me too. I, I read it and I was like, I don't know what I think about this, and I was like, oh god. And I it, felt like it was like an ultra dark version of that book we read for book club last month, The Comeback. Oh, God. Because it's like the same kind of thing. Kind except of. Except it goes really, really dark. Kind of. Yeah. I I will read anything this author it, writes. I, if you were like, did you did you like that? And I was like, I don't know. But I like compulsively was like, got to finish it. <laughs> got to <Yes>. know. <laughs> I can't recommend any of Tiffany Jackson's books enough. Like order all three and you have like your perf- my perfect weekend. <laughs> Um, so yeah, those yeah. are the two things we read. What are you reading now? I haven't Have you started, started anything, anything new yet. No. Oh, last night? I, I, s- I know what I'm going to start, but I haven't started it yet. Last night, I was going to go back to the Alice Hoffman book. And I think this is just a theme. I think I should just mail it to my mom. You're Yeah, you're like deluding yourself. I'm, I am going to read it at some point. I just really like my favorite books besides thrillers or memoirs. And I especially food or magazines. And our friend Emily Fedner, who runs Food Lover's Diary, she's the best. You should all follow her. Um, We went over her house for dinner a couple weeks ago. um, And she recommended or told us, like, we were just swapping recs. And she's like, Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. And I was like, oh, my God, you know what? I actually haven't read that one, which, like, this is my wheelhouse. Like, Save Me the Plums by Ruth Reichel is my favorite book besides Devil in the White City. I am only a couple chapters in, but like I find myself like, oh, just like tearing up, missing Anthony Bourdain, also loving his writing style. Like he has this whole like essay on eating his first oyster and how it was like his introduction to the world and how he he, like compares it to losing his virginity. It's just wonderful. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. But you know who else I'm happy for? Who? Well, also you, because you haven't read it yet. And also our whole audience, because we are announcing. What a a transition, Becca. Thank you. (laughs) Masterful. Um, We are introducing our October book club pick, and I'm so excited about it. We're going to read You Had Me at Ola by Alexis Daria. And I can't wait to read this. So good. So this is a contemporary romance. It does have steamy bits, if that is a plus for you. Um. And it's a romance that is set on a telenovela. So it's like a modern telenovela, like a Netflix-style telenovela 
it's a romance between the two leads and it's kind of like a will they or won't they one has a secret it's great it is so fun i i it is kind of akin to a jasmine guillory in that it is like a really great romance but it's really well written and it also kind of deals with some more serious topics as well as um like it has a point of view in addition to just like being fun yeah but it's super fun i loved it so i'm very excited for everyone to read this and we will discuss it the last week of october so that's that's what we got for you today that's it but if you want more of us, go to our Facebook group. It's just search Bad on Paper Facebook group. Follow us on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. You can follow me at, at Grace Atwood. I'm also at thestripe.com where I blog every single day. I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. And the trailer for season two of Romcom Pod should be up now. It comes out October 12th. Please listen. We're so excited. It's so good. I've listened to the first episode. It's amazing. Yay. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.